Do you prefer to go by your actual name or SWYX? Whatever you feel comfortable, Swix or Sean. I would usually say Sean Wang, popularly known as Swix on the internet. Get both of them in there. Is that how you actually say it? Yeah, there is no other way. People always are unsure, but then there's no other way. I know, right? It's like, to me, it's always been a fairly intuitive pronunciation. It's like Swix, like S-W-I-X. Duh. <laughs> like you said, how else would you pronounce it? Welcome back to FS Jam. Today we've got a really exciting guest, Sean Wang, also known as Swix on Twitter. He's a developer advocate? Developer experience. Developer advocate who works on developer experience. It's probably how I would describe it. I hate terms. <laughs> He's a developer advocate that works on developer experience at AWS Amplify. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me. I can fill out more intro if you need to, or we can just get right to the topics. I'd love to get how you describe yourself, because, you know, as we're saying here, these these terms are a little bit fluid. I struggle to define exactly what, what I do as well, but I think you and I are kind of swimming in the same boat in terms of the work we do. So I'd really love to hear, like, how you describe your work. I like to describe it as working on developer experience in general. And then the two things that kind of fall out of that are developer tools and developer communities. Most recently, I was at Netlify. My job title was literally developer experience engineer. I do a lot of sort of open source advocacy research. I don't maintain any big popular open source tools, but I'm basically friends of all of them. I do a lot of writing about them, teaching on egghead.io, as well as I'm on my own personal blog. And then a fair amount of community work. I helped to moderate the r slash ReactJS subreddit, helping it to grow to over 200,000 members. And then I left. I started the Svelte Society meetup. That's a growing community now. I'm also managing my own book community because I wrote a book last year. It's a paid community for people talking about the non-technical aspects of technical careers. That's been doing pretty well as well. I think the summation of it is that developer experience is a holistic approach in terms of like the tooling as well as the people. I'm pretty interested in both sides. Yeah, I usually think of it in terms of two poles, but you're actually helping me think of it more as like a three pole kind of thing. I usually think of it as community being one end and then like content creation being kind of the other end, or it looks like you're thinking of like community on one end and like kind of tools on one end. And for you, I guess content creation is kind of like for all of it. Yeah. You know, my approach is to just try to treat it as side effect of everything that I do. It works better if you don't treat it like a job, you just treat it as like a thing that you do normally anyway. It's kind of like, like breathing. You don't think about breathing as like a separate job. You just breathe. You are known for learn in public is kind of your like catchphrase that you've really spent a lot of time getting out there and explaining what is this. And I'm someone who I used to be a teacher and like as a teacher, the kind of feedback loop between teaching and like learning yourself is like it's baked in like you can't teach without learning so like when I first kind of heard you talking about this like oh so you're you're saying you're you're a teacher I would never say I'm a teacher I just write my notes the notes that I wish I would had sometimes it's useful just for myself and sometimes it's useful to others the assertion is that you do a much better job of it you learn a lot faster and you grow your network a lot faster if you do it in public Whereas the default that we've been taught in schools is to do everything in private because schools have a very zero-sum view of the world. The reality is that it's, uh, the world is very positive-sum if you treat it that way. 
It's one of those things I find that people have a hard time wrapping their mind around what teaching actually is, which is why I feel like there's a huge disconnect between, like you say, what you do and what is considered teaching because our school system has warped people's minds. I don't call it teaching because when you're a teacher, you're, you have responsibility for the student to learn something. That necessarily means sometimes you slow yourself down to match the pace of the student. I don't really care about that. You're either with me or you're not, and it's fine if you're not because there's someone else who's going to be more your speed. I'm just going to do my best. Those people who sort of vibrate at the same frequency as I do can follow along and the rest, it's not a fit. And I'm not going to change who I am just to go cater to a particular student audience. I mean, I can do if I want to, right? I just don't think that that is the best use of time sometimes. I sometimes question with Learn to Public, what was your experiences before you started learning in public? And was it institutionalized? So you've already walked out with a computer science degree and now you're learning in public or you're starting from nothing and you're learning in public? So first of all, I don't have a CS degree. I, I went through boot camp. My previous experience was, my previous career was in finance. I worked in investment banking and hedge funds. Some of the best work of my life I did in those hedge funds and banks, and I'll never see that again. I wrote my research reports and my investment theses, and my boss was like super impressed with them. He like sent me warm, like congratulatory messages about like some of the, the really good stuff that I did. And now it's gone. I will never have it again. No one ever saw it. It just sat in my boss's mailbox. And then we both moved on to different companies and now it's just gone forever. That's a really deep experience that, that really cut to my core because that's five, six years of my life I'll never see again. And I don't want to live like that. That's a fundamental desire just for me to live life in higher resolution than like, this is just a job and whatever I do is property of my employer. I think tech is a fundamentally more open industry than finance. And so I'm, I'm embracing that as much as confidentiality and all that will let me. And so definitely open source and this, this whole movement of being building in the open and learning in, in public is really helpful. But I didn't really get this religion, if you can call it that, until I graduated from my boot camp. And I was in my first software engineering job post boot camp. And I was very underused. So I actually just started blogging and speaking at a meetup just to learn stuff because I was not learning at work. And that actually became a bigger source of learning than my, than my workplace. And then I realized this is the kind of teaching that I can create for myself and, and the opportunities that I could create for myself if I did this in public. When you limit yourself to just the current employer that you work at, then it's really like a roll of the dice because some of them, you know, I did not have a good mentor and I would have been stuck with this guy if I didn't put in the effort to find mentors outside of, outside of work. It started working for me and then I just kept at it. And now I'm about like three or four years in. The majority of the job offers that I get are all through my relationships. It's a fundamentally different thing to have someone sit down and interview you and say, oh, this is just a formality because I Googled you and you're the kind of person we're looking for. And that's because there's nothing left to prove. If you learn in public, you go so much more higher definition than just the CV because the CV is a very lossy, if you think about compress years of my life into this one page and hope that the other side has the same key to unlock it and decompress it to see if it's a match. It's such a ridiculous game. And not just, let's not talk about the CV and let's not talk about the resume, talk about the interview as well. Like set up some artificial 30 to 45 minute scenario where uh, you can show us your coding skills. Why not do more than that? Basically show this body of work that can really give the full impression of like what you can and cannot do. The more I explore this idea, the more I fell in love with it. I would not push it so hard if I didn't truly believe that people would benefit from it. 
it's not my idea. I got it from Kelsey Hightower, who's who's sort of Mr. Kubernetes. I'm sure he got it from somewhere else. The earliest mention I can find of this goes actually goes back to NASA, which uses learning in public as as a form of knowledge transfer within the organization. It's an idea with a very strong intellectual history, and there are a bunch of reasons why it works. I think developers would be well served to do it. And I'm not saying to put yourself out in public 100% of your time and to live tweet every single thought going through your head. Nobody wants that. But the default is zero, and you probably want to go from zero to five or 10% public. That will open you up to a lot more luck and learning and networking than you had before. You did Full Stack Academy, right? That was your boot camp? Yeah. Yeah, because I had heard of Full Stack Academy because they actually put out a lot of really fantastic short YouTube videos of people giving presentations there. And so it seemed to me like they were kind of more focused in actually teaching their students like what advocacy is. Did you do any of that when you were in Full Stack Academy or was the stuff that you totally got after your bootcamp? I mostly got it after. The videos are kind of a portfolio piece, but they're not done with the purpose of doing advocacy. It's just, you know, a way to present your work. Yeah, it's just a nice kind of side effect of that, I guess, is that can kind of push you in more of the advocacy direction, yeah. There is a video of me, it's not very good, <laughs> but there is a video of me presenting my my projects somewhere. It's a great bootcamp. The thing that I got from them is to focus on systems over goals. Setting goals alone just doesn't really tell you how to get them. You need to focus on the system anyway. And then once you're focusing on a system so much, you don't really care about the goal because all you got to do is keep working on a system to be better than you were the day before. And that's all that matters. Yeah, my music teacher, Stuart, called it process, not product, was the term we used. Sure. Different yeah. names for the same thing. So one of the things that I always think about learning and teaching in public, it works both ways. As you said, it shows that you're worth a lot more than just what's on a CV. But then you're also teaching other people how to follow your path. How many times have we came up against a problem and gone, am I the first person to be figuring this out? And then you solve the problem and you don't actually document it. And if you then do document it, is that in private or is that in public? And this is the thing that I have to hold up my hands and say I struggle with for multiple reasons, because the product I'm building, I believe we're doing a lot of firsts with what we're doing with Redwood. There's so many things like I need to write a post, how to do that. I need to write that. I need to write that. And then I just get lost because I'm so focused on the point of building but I understand that's very unique to an entrepreneur, developer, compared to someone that's working for a company. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. I would say, I mean, Redwood is still so new that uh, you may very well be the first person running into this stuff and it would be very valuable for them. But, you know, don't, don't feel the pressure to do it. You do have a day job already, which is trying to build this, <laughs> this company. company. <laughs> you limit yourself to do what you can, right? Like, I think you should just fundamentally internalize that you're not going to produce at the level of professional content creators, but like two to three minutes from you on like the core insight, just like a screen share, right? I really like the, the idea of Loom. Loom is this app that just lets you record and share uh, video clips. Just five minutes from you showing the, the insight, a good title that people can search, um, some code snippets that people can copy from. Uh, that might save someone hours and, and days of just like searching around. And they may connect with you and they might work with you in the future. You never know. But if you just kept it to yourself, then it will not happen. Well, that's the one thing that's for sure. So I think if you time box it, okay, I only have five minutes, 30 minutes. Let's like put down the most important things I learned uh, in this period. And then just do it. And, and, and whatever you end up with, you, you just have to ship it. You don't give yourself 
some some choice that it has to be perfect or, or like a super well written blog post with like introductory context and like an end conclusion and like whatever. Get rid of all yeah. of that. Just 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 go core insight done. Next, move on. Step one here's the first bit of code. Step two here's the second bit. Step three run it and uh, never look at this post. Even again. that may be too much effort, right? Like literally, sometimes you just have to go. Like I was doing this and then I tried this other thing and it worked. End of story. And sometimes those are the best blog posts because straight to the point. You're not telling me about your day. I don't care as a as a reader. I think that's really the hardest thing for people getting started in content creation is this idea of it has to be this big thing. It has to be really involved and it has to be perfect. Yeah. We copy what we see in others. And sometimes that's that's important. You know, sometimes the the, the context and the introduction is important. But if you're gonna do this like every day, nah, get rid of it. Only do it when it really matters. In fact. Sometimes I, I see a lot of people do this. Actually, they'll start out with the stub, with the core. If people like see a lot of demand for it, then they'll they'll flesh it out over time. You know, a blog post is not like the static thing that you that you write on that day and you never touch ever. You can start out with the stub and then flesh it out if people want more. But if people don't want more, then why are you investing so much effort upfront? People want a lot more svelte kit, according to my my blog metrics. <laughs> it's just a new toy. The state of JS just came out, and svelte was on top to most want. To use, I think it was that. Highest satisfaction, and then there was another one. Uh, highest like interest for learning, um, something like that. It's doing well. What's funny is like you know I'm invested in Svelte success. I think React is great too. I'm at a point where like I'm not gonna make money like betting on either. Like uh, as long as I can use either one of them, they're they're both great. I can make user interfaces with them. Let's let's talk about other stuff that that actually you know helps me make money as a as an entrepreneur or a developer. Yeah, you're in a very interesting position in your job in AWS. I'd like to get into this because this is something that is really passionate for us. This is, of course, the Full Stack Jam Stack podcast. And when I look at the kind of areas you're spinning around with AWS, to me, it's very full stack focused, and it's very much in the same kind of ideas of what we're trying to enable here with Redwood. And a lot of tools, a large suite of things you're kind of working on. To me, I personally think of as like amplifies, like the big bucket. You may or may not agree with that, but I'd be kind of curious for my sake, at least to start there and say like, what is Amplify? Sure. Amplify is like a dedicated team to solve front-end developer-specific issues using AWS. So AWS is an existing bundle of services, something like 200-ish services solving problems at all sorts of scale for for all sorts of customers. The problem is you the saying is that you kind of have to go to nine months of cloud school to even get anywhere doing that. And front end developers, it doesn't really resonate when I talk about VPCs and IAM policies and stuff like that. It doesn't really resonate with front end developers. And that's fine. And I think companies like Netlify and Vercel have really paved the way to like the kind of workflow that front end developers like, which is very, very minimal you know, DevOps essentially, and as much business logic writing as possible. And then you just push to Git and it deploys. And that's a, that's a very fundamental concept of Jamstack. And I think that's something that for sure, those two startups have really pioneered. The main thing that Amplify does is, is essentially helps you do that with AWS tools. So the idea is that if you're a company that already is primarily on AWS and you want to have that kind of developer experience without using like a separate startups cloud or separate billing process or separate whatever, like identity, like, you know, you already have an existing database that you want to plug into at AWS. So you already have an existing identity system with all your customers already on it. Like you don't want to 
replicate that to some other random system just just to have a different developer experience. So Amplify basically is is there to sort of uh, smooth out the the sort of developer experience for for front end developers, even right down to the point of abstracting away the AWS specific naming. So instead of saying like, oh, I want to add Amazon Cognito to my service, um, you just say Amplify add auth, and that's the CLI command that you that you want that you type for adding auth authentication to your app. Or you know, I want storage. Okay, Amplify add storage, and you don't really have to know about S3, even though that's uh, that's eventually what you're gonna get. There's a full set of services that are available, and I think that's something I really like about Amplify, which is that they really just go all out because AWS has so many great services. It's kind of like the best of the best. They curate the services for you. So like there's there's a solution for analytics, there's a solution for you know GraphQL gateway, there's a solution for NoSQL database as well as SQL databases. It's all on the same platform. It's got the same cost control measures. It's got the same sort of environment and region deployment settings. And these are all proven at scale at AWS's scale. I really like this alternative that is available. And I think probably we could do more with Redwood. Uh, <laughs> I've talked to Natter a couple times about it. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, the problem with working on such a broad platform is that you never really know what to collaborate on. Because like there's, apart from Redwood, there's like the Vue ecosystem. There's the Angular ecosystem. They all have legitimate claims. And for us, as long as we identify like, here's where you put your build artifacts. Here's where you put in all the UI specific components that we offer. That's about it. Like if you know JavaScript, then you know all these all the other things that you can provide. And it's kind of up to you with your specific meta framework or whatever to plug into that hosting platform. So I'm not too concerned about it, but I mean, it'd be nice. Like the thing about Redwood that always stuck with me, right? Like even when I was at Netlify and I, I wrote that the world's first blog post on Redwood, you're like following along the tutorial and you're, you're like deploying to, to Netlify and all that. That's great. And then you need a database. And then they're like, yeah, go to DigitalOcean and spin up something. And I'm like, that's not what I want, right? So, so I, you know, ideally Redwood would have a host that one place to handle everything. I think that that would be a nice ideal. And Tom Preston Werner has mentioned stuff about this before, but it seems like Netlify hasn't gone that way yet. You hit on so many, so many great things in there explaining like what Amplify is. It's to me is a lot like explaining like what Redwood is because it's hard. Like it's, it's a lot of things and it's also, it's doing a lot of things for you potentially, but at the same time it can't do everything. So you have to know what it does for you and what it doesn't do for you and what options you can have with it and how you can, you know, finagle it around with other tools and things. I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're you're interested in getting more integration there because I agree. I think it's at this point where there still needs to be some more things kind of ironed out in Redwood in terms of like how the auth fits in and how to get it to work with NoSQL. That stuff is going to be a little complicated, but um, there's definitely a lot of potential there in terms of how they could interop. Yeah, Amplify is NoSQL by default, but we do have an integration with Aurora SQL. That's an option. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Amplify is also like super full stack. It's hard for me to even identify what it doesn't do because we just launched containers hosting. So you can run like Rails on Amplify. Then there's like no, there's like really no limit. So, I mean, that's decidedly not Jamstack, but it's like really stretching this idea of what serverless even is because the deployment paradigm really is the same as a serverless function. It's just that instead of deploying a, a simple Lambda function, you're actually deploying a container. That's wild. But yeah, I mean, Amplify is really stretching it based on the existing capabilities of AWS. And I, I really like that idea. Honestly, to me, I, I'm also just like trying to learn. Like, I think every developer, you, you can't go your whole career without knowing at least some AWS. So I think this is a really great job to do that with. I have an interesting opinion about AWS. 
it's just too complex. So I've gone through three iterations to find what we're building now. And the first iteration was all built on AWS three years ago now. So I don't even think Amplify was a thing then. But you just got lost with all the connections. What I'm really interested in knowing about Amplify, is it almost a second layer provider on the first layer? Netlify runs on Amazon. But that's second layer. And that gives a lot of peace of mind to myself personally. I don't mind that you run on AWS. It's I know I never have to worry about AWS. Is Amplify almost like a mask for AWS? Or is it just AWS? It's the latter. I've actually done this blog about second layer clouds. I call them cloud distros, distributions of clouds. Amplify is not that. It basically scaffolds out cloud formation for you, which is the default yeah. language of Amazon. What that lets you do is that once you deploy it, Amplify kind of goes away if you want it to, and you're just left with the raw AWS resources that you needed in the first place. With Netlify and Vercel, you do have a startup that's in between, and you can't really easily port between that and the underlying layer, eject for, to the underlying layer if you needed yeah. to. There's one other startup that is doing this ejectable scaffolding, which is Begin, begin.com. They're really interesting uh, experiments because it's this idea of like, how much do developers actually care about the underlying abstraction? So the argument of Netlify and Vercel is that if you lock everything down and, and you don't let people escape to the underlying layer, then you're able to provide a much better user experience because they don't have that many things to configure and, and there's not so many options. Whereas Amplify, if you look at the CLI, there's a ton of different options and there's a learning curve to that. So it's trade-offs all the way. There's like a law of leaky abstractions, like basically all abstractions leak. It matters what your approach to leaking is. Eventually it's going to leak. Either you let people know upfront or you push it to later when they're going to find out at some point in time. But I, I don't think it's like a hard rule. I think there's space in the market for both of these kinds of solutions. But yeah, I, I do have a lot of thoughts on like the second layer cloud. Let's say there are like three big clouds. There, there, there's more than three, but like, you know, Amazon, Google, Microsoft. How do you make the fourth big cloud or how do you make the competitor cloud, which is what render.com and Vercel and, and Netlify, that's the ultimate end game, which is you build the second layer cloud, you get all the developers on them, and then you move off of AWS. You buy your own machines and data centers and you build the fourth or fifth independent cloud that completely blows away the sort of legacy AWS-ness, which nobody loves. Nobody goes in, wakes up one day and go like, you know, I really aspire to grow up to be an EC2 wizard. I think the end game is, is people want to build the next independent cloud. So maybe that's one way to do it. As far as AWS Amplify goes, it's just a tool to use AWS easier. Netlify and Vercel, they have really good abilities to onboard certain sections instantly. You never have to use Netlify or Vercel from the start. You can obviously transition to them later. Is Amplify kind of like something you need to use from the start or you can pick up later when... DigitalOcean is no longer good enough for you all. Could you repeat? I don't understand this. The, the premise of the question is: Can you migrate into Amplify? Can you migrate an existing project into Amplify? Is what he's wondering. Migrate. Yes. Uh, define migrate. <laughs> <laughs> Just lift and shift with no work whatsoever. Move from I mean, other services you're, to you're the saying, AWS alternative. You're saying you can do that for Netlify. That's your that's your standard. In the certain scenarios of. It's just a front end that needs to be hosted somewhere. Netlify oh, yeah, yeah, does yeah. that, you know. I'd say I'd say Amplify's capability is a superset of what uh, what those two offer. So that's a yes. 
But then, you know, my definition is is very different, which is like when you say lift and shift, when you say migrate, I'm thinking like the full stack, non-Jamstack. Could be Rails, it could be Laravel. Yeah, that might take a lot more effort. But with enough elbow grease, you can migrate anything. So that's why I asked you to define migrating. Yes, because for example, and this is where Redwood is kind of going to a certain extent of they started with this is going to be ran on serverless functions to if you kind of want very, very good performance, you need to host something, you know, you need to get a node runner. I found that serverless wasn't quite good in it. So then I had to learn PM2, boot it up on PM2, host an Ubuntu system. Every time you do them extra steps, you're adding an extra step of complexity. That's why I like this idea of containers as like the deployment unit, because everyone can speak containers. And then all you got to do is fit your app into the container. And then it's understood by everyone. Basically, like all the Jamstack providers are essentially creating their own configuration system. It'd be nice if we all got together, sat down in a room and just like decided on one format. That's what Glenn Mattern from Link, which just got acquired by Cloudflare. So they're trying to do the front end application bundle is what he calls it. Yeah, Fab. I first learned about Fab from Peter, actually, the Redwood developer. It's an interesting idea with the only problem that it's so focused on Cloudflare workers that nobody else can adopt it. For a spec to work, it needs to have adoption. And this one, this has no adoption apart from Cloudflare. And now Cloudflare has acquired it, so there's even less incentive to make it work. Ultimately, what, what we got to do is like have this idea of containers for front-end developers. Maybe the spirit of Fab will live on. But I think for back-end services, for serverless, I really like this idea that we use Docker containers, like just like everyone else. That's something that Amplify released recently, which is this idea of serving containers in a similar deployment workflow as uh, serverless functions. I really like it. It's something that I would explore for Redwood, given what you just said, Christopher. Fargate was the first one that that Peter was kind of looking at in terms of getting Redwood on like a containerization type thing. And I'm kind of curious about this because it sounds like Amplify is set up in a way where there are certain opinionated stacks already built into it, but obviously they want to give you flexibility. So do you think of a canonical Amplify stack or does that not jive to you with what you think of as Amplify? Do you think there is an opinionated Amplify stack or do you think that there is actually you can have it be configured just as well to work serverless or say with containers? The answer is somewhere in between. <laughs> so Amplify is very opinionated that you should use AWS. Uh, if you're not looking to use AWS, you should use something else. And then within AWS, Amplify is pretty opinionated that you should use this sort of serverless versions of whatever is available within the all of AWS's offerings. So it's kind of like best of AWS's serverless offerings. So even the Fargate, which is the serverless containers things, is marketed as part of the whole serverless offering which is kind of blending this idea of like what serverless even is. Why should your function terminate within five minutes or 15 minutes? Why, why can't it go for five hours or five days or 500 days? There's cost issues and all that. But when your infrastructure starts to leak implementation detail into your code and you're trying to code around it, that's when there's an opportunity to improve the infrastructure so that developers can express what they want and the infrastructure figures it out. That's the ultimate goal for, for Amplify. And that's my answer for the opinionatedness. People do think that you know, serverless seems to be the deployment model that people enjoy. It's not perfect, but it is improving every single year. My one comment with containers is, do you think the struggle with it is the creating of the containers? Because every time I've used Docker, I found it very easy to pull containers through Compose, but actually creating containers and understanding that side of the ecosystem, I found really hard at the beginning to understand. Yeah, well, Dockerizing is like, there are a lot of tutorials on that. 
the, the assertion is like, what else are you going to do? So what is the alternative to, to Dockerizing? Just because there is a learning curve, like at least it's a standardized learning curve <laughs> compared to a bunch of custom instructions that, you know, you have to learn every single time you approach a new project. So I, I don't know what the alternative is. Could it be done for you through one command? Dockerize this from like a framework perspective. Sure. Maybe someone could build it. Um, I'm not smart enough to have explored that yet, but if it doesn't exist, why doesn't it exist? <laughs> exactly. Get kicking, Chris. It's one of those things where like probably learning the thing is easier than coding some generalized tool that abstracts it away for everyone. I definitely think I'm on that side of the bucket. Yes, it took me some time to learn it, but it wasn't that hard. Yeah, solving something for everyone instead of yourself, I think, will always be harder in all situations. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that's it. You know, uh, never say never. And people come along all the time and surprise us with their persistence. And I think someone just has to feel the pain enough. And maybe people haven't feel the pain. Like Netlify, I don't know if you've, you've seen, like Netlify's Docker image is essentially this giant Docker file that is just built up over like six years of existence. And it's essentially like the Docker file for all Netlify users. Is that on the Docker repo? Just search like GitHub slash Netlify slash build image. That is really interesting. I would be interested in checking that out. Yeah, because you can build it locally. Like you could host the Docker yourself. And... Yeah, it's it's a way oh, yeah. to debug. Oh, yeah, it's just on GitHub. That's cool. Yeah, it's also on Docker Hub too. Yeah, and, and there's some blog posts about that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where like you're just kind of sweeping the complexity under the rug. You're never really going to reduce it. Either the startup solves it for you or someone else comes along and solves it in like an open way. But that is often a bit harder because uh, by definition, they are not going to be making any money from it. <laughs> yeah. Another thing I would like to talk about is a project I think you've put a decent amount of work into, which is the data store. Can you say what the AWS data store is? Ooh, yes. Okay. All right. This is great because I want to know what the Redwood perspective is. The data store is a local replica of your remote database. For us, it's DynamoDB. It's an on-device local replica. So in other words, this helps you do offline CRUD. It helps you make offline-first apps. And as a nice side effect, it also eliminates any need for optimistic mutations, uh, like optimistic updates, because you're just directly coding it. It helps you also sync live. Like if anyone else connecting to the same app makes updates, your client automatically receives it because it's like a publish and subscribe model. So it really inverts a bunch of things that we take for granted in today's apps, which is very much like request response. And then like all the state is kind of held in like local state or, or uh, sorry, the component state or whatever, or your Redux store. And the developer is responsible for writing all the syncing code and the invalidation code. What if we centralize all of that into a data store with very well understood syncing and conflict resolution and offline handling semantics? that we could just use and code against um, that actually reduces a lot of code because uh, you, you know, you don't have to code for like retries and, and failures and all that and, and optimistic updates. And it produces a much better user experience because the app just feels a lot faster, which is <laughs> really great. People who have been around the block on, in JS land uh, will compare this to mini Mongo from, from the Meteor ecosystem. And I would say that's basically exactly what it is, except that it's the AWS version. It's attached to DynamoDB, which is a very, very scalable database. I like it a lot. There is one trade-off, which is the weight, the JavaScript bundle weight. So you do have to take care to code split it and only use it where it makes sense. But for the weight that you use, it's like 500 KB. It's not bad. It's a local on-device data store for your app. So if you need anything that is like offline first and you know you want a very snappy user experience, I, I really like it. 
Yeah, this is super interesting, and I wish we had uh, Dom here, because Dom talked about this on his episode, episode 7, Shipping Web Applications, how he wants to create what he calls a, a local-first application, and it's it's exactly what you just what you just described, the, the type of thing he's looking for, it sounds like, is data store. It sounds like the way we're managing this is with Apollo's cache. I'm not sure how how similar those things are, but at least that seems to be the tool we're using to kind of like try and approximate the ability to do that. I am not deep enough into the Redwood code base to know about this, but I know it is a pain point that people are looking at in Redwood. So I have some familiarity with it and I'd say Apollo's cache is still too manual. You still have to write your your own optimistic updates and you still have to you know decide what the invalidation and if there's any conflicts, you have to decide that and you have to decide retries and, and, and all that as well. Yeah, like we should just like agree on, on what this behavior is and have just some toggles of settings of like use this setting for this kind of use case and use this other setting for this other kind of use case. Obviously, you can drop it down if you want to, but most people are not going to. I really like the fact that it also does the live syncing with other devices so you can do collaborative editing just right out of the box. Try doing that with Apollo Cache. I, I don't know. I don't know where you get started. Here's like the really big brain thesis. I haven't blogged about this, but this is like a preview of a blog post. What we're doing here is abstracting over... REST. We basically realized that REST is not good enough for the developer experience. Like the, the amount of state management and like code needed to deal with REST on the client side and on the server side is unnecessary. GraphQL is a layer on top of REST. That's what React server components is essentially a new protocol that serializes you know, React components down the wire. But it's another layer on top of REST because we don't want to deal with all this crap. And that's what also Amplify Data Store and Meteor's mini Mongo is also another form to bypass REST because you have your local data store, you interact with that data store and you do all your updates with it. And the data store just syncs with its remote counterpart and just handles all that syncing. You're not responsible for any of that code. And that's that's really great. So that's my core insight. I, I think that you spend a lot of time doing state management and, and data fetching and, and retries. And maybe what if we did not have to do any of that? And that's, that's a wild simplification of how front-end apps are made today, I think. Oh, I love that. I was having this argument on Twitter with Dan Shapiro the other day. He was like, what's wrong with REST APIs? And I'm just like, what's wrong with like, really? No challenges whatsoever for you. They're not wrong because like ultimately we're still going to probably use them under the under hood or we could use WebSockets. It just doesn't matter. It's like the wrong level level of abstraction for app developers, I think. In the latest Redwood update, Apollo is actually optional now as the default client. Nobody's took the unbeaten path yet and replaced Apollo, but I'm looking at it in my startup and look to convert to React query part of the tan stack we'll see how that goes on fact I, I, has... I coined i coined the tan stack too <laughs> that's so funny i was i remember when i first saw that because i i use you know the, the stack and the, and the full stack before i was doing the full stack jam stack podcast with chris i had a newsletter called minimum viable stack and i was like dude just named a stack after himself next level happy to hear that you're the one who coined that that's funny I love how it is called the tan stack, even though it's just three sections right now. It's not the full stack yet, just three <laughs> sections of it. Yeah, no, but um, t I mean, Tanner's a good friend and uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's prolific. I don't know how he does it because he has a day job too. He doesn't do this full time. Yeah, React Query is really great. It solves the data fetching problem in React. I just do think that it probably should exist one a little bit higher in abstraction with essentially like your, your schema should be also be on your local device. And 
if there's an authorization model together with your database, that's even better. That's something that Amplify definitely really invests in. I think often access control should also come with your data. It takes a lot of integration to get that right. I think that's something that is probably a comparative advantage of Amplify compared to piecing together your own tools because you're going to have to go that yourself if you, if you want all that. Do you have any last questions, Chris, before we close it out here? Do you still believe in the third age of web? Was oh, even more third now. Third age of JavaScript. The third, third age, age of JavaScript. Of JavaScript. Um, yeah, so so for those listening, uh, it's, just, it's this thesis that every 10 years, there's like a changing of the guard in, in JavaScript. The, the first 10 years were kind of about building out the language. The second 10 years was about the tooling and the infrastructure. That's the 10 years that just concluded from 2009 to 2019. 2009 was the same year that Node, NPM, and ES5 were born in that same year. Pretty much like the past 10 years were about sort of realizing the, the consequences of that. Now the next 10 years is about consolidating those levels of tooling. Why do we need to wire together ESLint and Prettier and Babel and Webpack and what have you? Uh, why is that not all one tool? Why are we still building JavaScript dev tools in JavaScript when it's proven that ESBuild is 100 times faster than Webpack? So there's all these there's all these questions that arise. Uh, we can talk about Svelte versus React as well. Yeah, there's all these questions that are kind of legacy assumptions. And I think one of the big drivers is the death of IE 11, which is starting a slow decline. It will be completely gone by 2030. That gives us a lot of opportunities for, for a new generation of tooling that doesn't have legacy assumptions and collapses together a bunch of tooling that has become industry standard. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a lot of innovation and a lot of opportunities for, for open source developers if they want to. But also it's, it's going to be a little bit tiring in terms of like the, the churn of, of the ecosystem. <laughs> but it's nothing new for JavaScript developers. And if, if anything, we've, we've shown that we're very resilient to changes in, in our tooling. Yeah, I think part of this churn is because there's such a a historical bent in web development like web developers aren't taught older tools which like makes sense because like you really shouldn't but you need, need to know the context which is why like i love the the blogging you do and, and the historical context you put into your writing and so we'll definitely link to that in the in the show notes um i think most listeners probably already know this but why don't you let them know kind of where people can find you online where where the best place is to to read your stuff and, and get in contact with you sure i'm active on Twitter at Swix, and then my blog is at Swix.io. Very cool, man. Thank you so much for, for being here. I got like so much respect for, for the work you do and the, the stuff that you're kind of spinning around is just like, it's fun, it's cool stuff. And like, I love how much you get out and communicate these things, you know, it really resonates with kind of my values. So thank you for doing what you do. Uh, thank you. Um, and thanks for having me on. This is one of those things like I could talk to you for freaking hours about this <laughs> stuff. Like so, so many things, so many rabbit holes. So many times I did not jump into a rabbit mm -hmm. hole because I was like, we got to stay on track. We got important things to talk about here. <laughs>